Welcome to Unabridged Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition. This podcast features unedited interviews from most of the participants in the documentary film project, Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition, released in 2021 by BK Scholar Productions. Each interview is introduced by Conversations director, filmmaker, and interviewer, Edwion Easy Stokes. This episode of Unabridged Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition features former Black Liberation Army member and former political prisoner, Sekou Odinga. This interview was filmed between 2017 and 2018 in Brooklyn, New York. Tell me who you are and talk to me about the work that you do. My name is Sekou Ngabazi Abdullah Odinga. I guess that don't really tell you who I am. I'm a, a former political prisoner. I, I did 30, 33 years in different prisons across this country for struggling for the liberation of our people. Um, I consider myself a, a revolutionary with goals of eventually living in a free and independent new African state. Uh, what is the black radical tradition in your perspective? What is the black radical tradition? It's, it's continuing that struggle. Uh, the tradition comes from the beginning of that struggle. Uh, I guess if we was, if I was really to try to define it, I would probably say that it began when the first African that was kidnapped resisted, and that tradition started there and carried on from that point to this point. Those who resist consciously the oppression of. African people here in the city country. Can you talk about how you got involved in radical politics? Was there a certain uh, certain incident that sort of that, that sort of made you from leave from the sidelines to sort of join the fight, or was it just something? Talk about the conditions that produced uh, a safe movement. Well, I guess as a youngster, I was kind of wild. Part of street gangs. I went. <clears throat> I was sent away to a correctional institute, Comstock, upstate New York, when I was 16. It was there, I guess, where I first become radicalized a little bit, and from there, I come out looking for the struggle, looking to get involved. I had a very close friend name was Lumumba, Lumumba Shakur, and he was upstate with me. His father was with Malcolm X when he was with, still with the, uh, the Nation of Islam back in the 50s and early 60s. And he used to, his father used to send him information. Uh, most of it was different writings and speeches uh, of Malcolm and my partner used to share them all with me you know, so that's kind of 
what first got me really interested. And then while we was up there, we had a major rebellion in the prison. It was, it was a nationalist rebellion against the white races, power structure of the prison. And that's how I first actually got involved in struggling against. Uh, that was the first action that I took, physical action that I took to, to oppose the oppressive conditions that I was under. Uh, can you talk to me about uh, what led you to ultimately joining the Black Liberation Army? Sort of talk about what were some of their philosophies and some of their general objectives that attracted you to the, to the organization? Well, like I said, I was very influenced by Malcolm. When I come out, I, I come out in the late 1963 from, from Comstock, and I went up, I come up to Harlem to try to uh, get involved or at least to get more information about the struggles that was going on, mostly looking to hear personally what Malcolm had to say. And that's kind of what led me around people who were involved. At the same time, I guess, uh, 1964, we had the World's Fair came to New York. And uh, I got involved with some young folks from Long Island City, who were working in the African Pavilion, who were very nationalistic, and most of them were Pan-Africans, or some of them were Pan-Africans at least. And that kind of led me into the Cultural Revolution. Uh, and just from one thing to another, from that to being on the streets in Harlem with the different uh, street corner philosophers and preachers, most of them preaching revolution, preaching struggle, uh, preaching it. All of them wasn't actually involved in it, but they were preaching it. And we were learning and uh, reading. I guess, you know, at the time, the anti-colonial struggles around the world was in full force, especially in Africa, you know. Uh, so the, the teachings of Patrice Lumumba and people like that were very influential. I took my name from Sekou Toure, who was uh, one of the leaders of the anti-colonial struggle in Guinea. And so, so I was really influenced very strongly by the anti-colonial struggles going on in Africa at the time. Uh, I want to ask you sort of um, some to reflect sort of you know, your time spent inside of the Black Panther Party, looking at some of the internal situations that were happening. Um, as far as your perspective, what is some of the internal conflict that ultimately led to the dismantling of the party? A lot of people talk about the West Coast factions between uh, Cleaver and uh, some of the original members. Uh, maybe, is that, is, that, is that accurate, or as far as your perspective, like what, what happened? Well, that would take a long time to tell the 
whole story, I guess. Uh, but I think that for me and for a lot of a lot of us here in New York, the straw that kind of broke the camel's back uh, was the way that New York 21 was treated. Uh, when they were, when I was one of the New York 21, it was 21 members of the leading cadre of the Black Panther Party from New York was uh, indicted and many of us, most of them, was arrested and uh, tried for so-called terrorists, uh, not actually terrorist acts. It was a, what they were alleging was that we were planning to uh, be involved in some terrorist acts. Anyhow, uh, I went underground from that. When they in my, tried to kick at my door, I was able to uh, escape. And I was asked to go to Africa to help organize and build the international section of, a international section of the Black Panther Party, uh, which I uh, agreed to do and did do. And so uh, I was over there during the, during most of, during all of the trial of the Black Panther Party. I mean, in the New York 21. And they were catching hell, you know, they put these astronomical uh, bells on them. Uh, most of them, these were my comrades, my very close comrades. So most of them couldn't make the bells as we were making, raising money around the world, and especially in New York, to try to raise bails and help the families of the brothers and sisters who were uh, locked down. The, the Central Committee out in California was insisting that the money all be sent to them, and they decide how much of it would be used for uh, the New York 21. And there was a real contradiction with that, especially since they didn't seem to think that they needed to continue to send uh, money to help with the lawyers and the bells and the families, etc., commissaries and everything else that we needed money for to help uh, deal with the New York 21. And so I, from my perspective, that's kind of what broke the camel's back. But there was a lot of other things going on at the time. Huey had recently come out of jail himself, and he had become a kind of a megalomaniac. He had kind of really got caught up into his own power. And it had to be his way or no way, you know. So that was a real problem right at that time. So, so uh, Eldridge took a position against that. He was the head of the of the international section. He was the leader. If there was a leader, he was would have been the one that was considered the leader of the international section of the of the Black Panther Party. And he was a, a member of the the Central Committee. And 
so as as one of the leadership he took a, a position against Huey's position he he kind of agreed with the masses of the party who thought that they needed to be concentrating more on do, helping the different local uh, chapters do what they were trying to do, which was to serve the people. I want to ask you about uh, your relationship with uh, Asada Shakur. She's often one of the most revered, I guess, members uh, when we think of, especially for my generation, I'm 31, but uh, when we think of black liberation and black history, we, we think of Asada Shakur, how she got to Cuba and how she's been uh, living in exile over there. So let's talk about your relationship uh, with her and your sort of, I guess, your role, if you want to say it like that, in getting her. We were very close. She was one of my comrades. When I come back from Africa, she, her, Zaid Shakur, and I, and a couple of other brothers and sisters, come together to build a unit of the BLA, the Black Liberation Army. And so her and I became very close. Uh, all of us were very close, actually. Uh, uh, I, I mentioned a brother named Lumumba Shakur earlier. Zaid Shakur was his brother, so we all came from out. Actually, all three of us, all of us, came from out of Queens. Uh, Asada, Zaid, Lumumba, myself, we were all from out of Jamaica. Uh, Lumumba and I grew up together, went to school together. But uh, So that's how her and I uh, became close comrades. And, once she was captured and Zaid was murdered out there on the highway on 95, uh, they, they, you know, uh, they treated her like they treat m most of the brothers and sisters uh, from the BLA or any other uh, group that's struggling against this system. But anyhow, the opportunity kind of presented itself to be able to maybe get her and bring her out, to bring her out of there, which we seize the opportunity and and come up with a decent plan that to go get her. I was one of the I was the one. There was only one of us that went into prison. I was the one that went in and brought her out. So. Um, I want to ask you about uh, you recently. Well. Not recently, but you were released after 30 plus years in federal penitentiary. How, how were you released? How, how did this come about? Uh, I won a, a, a case. I, won, I filed a uh, uh, Article 78, which is uh, a, legal, a legal argument to say, to challenge the jurisdiction of New York to be, to uh, be uh, imprisoning me at that time. My argument was that they had, they had given up their jurisdiction on me when they turned me over to the federal government. Uh, basically, the argument is that if you if you under two jurisdictions, if you 
charged under two jurisdictions. The first jurisdiction that captures you and indicts you is the, uh, is the controlling jurisdiction. And they're supposed to exhaust their remedies with you before turning you over to anyone else. By them turning me over to the federal jurisdiction before I finished my time in New York, uh, my argument was that they gave up jurisdiction because their law said they're not supposed to do that. And since they couldn't argue against it, the judge basically ruled in my favor, which is, and basically told them that they had to uh, release me on, uh, so, but what they did instead of releasing me, they just gave me parole. They didn't really release me, but that's how I actually hit the streets, so. I want to uh, sort of transition to that, um, and sort of ask you about political prisoners, uh, you being a former one yourself. What is the importance of political prisoners? Why do you think this country has taken such the, uh, the stance that they've taken that political prisoners technically don't, they, they don't really exist in this country? So what, what's your statement on because the, uh, <clears throat> they don't want people to realize and understand that people have people are actually struggling against this system, and they have a right to struggle against them. The laws, uh, the international laws, which should be the uh, the guiding laws of this this here country, since the Constitution says that international law is the the highest law of the land. Uh, it gives people, it gives oppressed people the right to struggle against their oppressor by any means. And this country has the government of this country, the United States government, has signed those documents in the UN and in the uh, Geneva Conventions, uh, agreeing with the right of. Uh, oppressed and colonized people to struggle by any means. So if they if they agree that there's they are political prisoners, then they they're basically agreeing that they are an oppressed an oppressive state. Which uh, of course they don't, they would never say. They like to present themselves as. The, the leader of the free world, whatever the hell that means. I, there is no free world, but uh, so that's that's basically why they don't they won't tell the truth about the existence of political prisoners, which there are many many political prisoners in this country, not just uh, from here, but this uh, the government brings. Uh, political prisoners from other struggles like in Afghanistan and Syria and Egypt and uh, Iraq and Pakistan. There's many political prisoners here. But we've had political prisoners here uh, since the 60s uh, that struggling here and some of them are still locked up. You know, uh, We also recognize brothers and sisters who become politicized in jail uh, as political prisoners because they're oftentimes held because of their political views and not, not because of, of their uh, 
so-called criminal ex. What's, uh, what's your message if you could address sort of the next generation of leadership, people who sort of wanted to come in behind you and pick up the struggle for black liberation? What would be uh, your message to them? That this is the time that we've been waiting on them. That's, that not only uh, is this the time, that it, it's something that is a real need. I believe that uh, only through the struggles of ourselves will we ever be completely free. But we have to understand what that means. What does freedom mean? Some people, freedom might mean just a job or or a degree. You know. So we have we need. I believe we need a cultural revolution here in this country first. Actually, for black people, many of us don't really even recognize. I talk about us being African people, but many people, many black people in this country, don't consider themselves African people. You ask ten different people on the street of African descent what's their nationality, you might get ten different answers. You know, you might you might hear Negro, you might hear Black American, you might hear just plain American, you might hear Afro American, uh, New African, Nubian. I, you know how many? It's so many. So I think we need a, rev a cultural revolution to to become clear on that we are a people and as a people we we are an oppressed people and that we need to struggle against our oppression and to uh, build our own independent nation i believe in the, the the idea of the ideas of the republic of new africa who says that we should have our own independent nation uh, malcolm x said that revolutions were about land, you know, and I think that's what we have to understand, that we can be an independent nation. This nation here, this was not, this area of land that they call America was not always called America. At one point it was Cherokee land, Apache land, Mohawk land, different other nations, and different many other nations where they came in. Uh, and just took it. If you look over there in Palestine right now, people are calling the, uh, the Palestinian land Israel. You know, when I was born, there was no such thing as Israel. You know, uh, so we have to understand that we have the right to do the same thing. We have even more, much more right than say those Europeans that went over to Palestine and and trying to uh, take that land from the Palestinian people. We actually built this land over here. Our forefathers bled and died and slaved to build this, this land and never got anything for it. So we have a right to it. Yeah. Well, I just want to say, uh, I want to make a comment and I have two more questions. I'm actually headed to Palestine on August 18th to do uh, some documentary film work out there. So I'll be there from the 18th to like September 5th. Yeah. But um, I want to go back, sort of, and circle back uh, into uh, some surveillance programs, mainly uh, Cointel Pro, because that's one of the programs that helped bring down the party. Um, what is your, what, what do you think sort of is the greatest fallout of that, uh, here we are, I guess 30, 40 years later, what do you think is the greatest fallout from the dismantling of, of the liberation movements that you were a part of? I think the greatest fallout from that whole 
COINTELPRO, that called Counterintelligent Program, is the acceptance of our people to uh, this oppression that we're under that we, we, we think is all right now for them to surveil us all the time. We're under surveillance 24-7. You know, they got cameras on us in the streets, on the street lamps, on the street lights, in the stores, on the corner lights, and everywhere. They, they're tapping our phones, they, they, and we, we're accepting it like it's all right. And that's, that's how fashion, fascist, fascism is built. You know, we have to be very careful that we don't accept fascism openly like the German people did and the Italian people did. I mean, we say we won't march to the, to the furnaces like the Jews, but we actually are allowing them to do them. I mean, they're locking us up and they're killing us in the streets with, uh, without any consequences today. And things are not getting better, they're getting worse. They didn't put a fascist in the White House today. Now, uh, this Trump guy, he might take it to the next step for real, you know, so. Cool, and finally, I just want to ask you, uh, what is sort of the day-to-day life for a brother say cool again now in 2017? It's a struggle, it's a struggle, you know. Trying to make a living is almost impossible after 30, 33 years and no college degrees. It's, it's very difficult for me. But I'm able to move around. I'm able to lobby for other political prisoners, which is the work that I try to do mostly, is to raise the consciousness in this country and around the world that there are political prisoners and that have struggled for us and that we have a a right, not only a right, a responsibility to struggle to free them, you know. And so that's that's my work, that's what I'm doing on a day-to-day level. I'm also writing, I'm trying to write a book. I just uh, helped release uh, a book called The Book for Me in the World, and was which was the first, which was first put out by the New York 21 prisoners that were behind the walls. It was like a sort of a semi-autobiography of the, of the 21. We re-released it with some updates to it uh, recently. So that's some of what I'm doing right now. I'm speaking and when I get chance to speak, I speak around the country, mostly at colleges and universities. Uh, I'll be speaking this week at the National, the National Lawyers Guild Convention in D, in D.C. Uh, I should be leaving tomorrow, actually. You know, so. Well, I'm good. I thought you had a good time. Thank you, Brother Sekou. Mm-hmm. Uh,